0: Welcome to Moroccan American, a podcast about Morocco and the United States. These two countries have maintained a consistent and long-term friendship over centuries, even while their common interests have not always perfectly aligned. What started this relationship and what has sustained it? Diving into the fields of diplomacy, literature, trade, and art, in this podcast, we'll dissect different parts of the Moroccan-American friendship and try to better understand this fascinating, complex, and close relationship. I'm your host, Graham Cornwell. Thanks for joining us. Throughout this podcast, we'll return to the theme of travelers, Moroccans visiting the U.S., Americans visiting Morocco. What did they make of their destination, and how did their impressions shape wider perceptions of the two places? One of the most famous Americans to write about Morocco was Edith Wharton. Wharton was a popular and acclaimed author whose work focused primarily on New York City elite society at the turn of the 20th century. She spent a great deal of time in Paris, spoke French fluently, and was intimately connected to important artists and politicians in both the U.S. and France. She's probably best known for her novels, The House of Mirth and The Age of Innocence, the latter of which won the 1921 Pulitzer Prize. So what does this have to do with Morocco? Well, less well-known among her works is Wharton's 1920 travelogue, titled simply In Morocco, which she wrote after a 1917 visit where she was hosted by Hubert Liotet, the very first resident general of the French Protectorate of Morocco. As a piece of literature, it's not the most exciting thing to read. But in this episode, we talk about what lies just under the surface. What was important about Wharton's visit to Morocco? What role did it play in the politics of the day, namely World War I and France's newest colonial venture in North Africa? Stacy Holden, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University and the author of The Politics of Food in Modern Morocco, joins to share her insights and her ongoing research on Edith Wharton. Stacy, thank you for, for joining us today. Um, very excited to talk about Edith Wharton and um, and particularly her time in Morocco for our our listeners our audience who doesn't already know um who was Edith Wharton
1: well Edith Wharton is is an interesting person she's she's known as a novelist uh she wrote by by the time she visited Morocco she had become very famous as a novelist uh as a poet as a short story writer uh she wrote books like the house of mirth in 1905 um she, which is about uh growing you know uh, a woman in new york city in the late 19th century uh she also wrote a novella called ethan frome in 1911 which is about uh her second home or the area or set in the area of her second home which is in lenox massachusetts so rural areas of lenox massachusetts and she had a real gift for capturing 19th century American society. And she was famous for that. But I think that um, to understand why it's important to look at Edith Wharton as a traveler to Morocco and someone who wrote a travel book about Morocco uh, in 1917, she traveled there. In 1920, she published the book. You really have to know more about her than just that she's a novelist. She is also um, part of what in the United States is called the Knickerbocker kind of set. That is, she is a descendant of the Dutch and English settlers um, who were in primarily New York City uh, and who had a lot of money and influence. Um, and so she's part of a very influential, very privileged uh set of political actors, even though she herself, of course, would never hold a political office. She's very connected to people who do. And that's because she was born into this Knickerbocker family.
0: And, and could you talk a little bit about some of her contemporaries? Who were other writers, or um, you know, novels or novelists that we think of when we think about Edith Wharton?
1: I think people normally think of her as being um, sort of the protege of Henry James, also known as sort of that classic American writer. Uh, she was also uh, mentored by a man called Charles Elliot Norton, who was a professor at Harvard University. She was friends with his daughter, Sarah, and he was very influential in in how she developed he. um Uh, was kind of a Renaissance man. He was a professor of the arts, uh, an intellectual. He would eventually come out against, um, imperialism in 1898 when the United States fought, uh, in the Spanish-American War. Um, and so I think she, I think those were the two people in particular who you'd kind of consider influences on her. But the people she grew up with, um, include Corinne Roosevelt and her and Corrine's older brother Theodore, that is Teddy Roosevelt, the future president. Henry Cabot Lodge, who would be the um chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in um after World War One, was also very dear to her. Um, she was friends with his children. She was a correspondent of Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, John C. White, who is sort of a, a, an extremely well-known diplomat uh, who worked with Roosevelt and with Woodrow Wilson. He signed, he was at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. He also signed the Treaty of Algeciras in 1906 on behalf of the United States. He was married to her next door neighbor um, who who she grew up, you know, um, playing with in the backyards. So she was her contemporaries were not just and I think this is really what I'm interested in. They weren't so much. I mean, it was interesting that she's very um, tied into creative people like Henry James but for me, what's really interesting is just how deeply embedded she is in the political political networks of her time. How many wow. influencers, if you will, um, presidents, diplomats, politicians she corresponded with and would would come to their house, have them to her house. Um, and in that sense, she's very important because she's able to shape conversations, uh, po- conversations about political life in a way that someone from another social group, um, yeah. might not, uh, have that ability. So that's, that's what really drew me to, to Edith Wharton.
0: Interesting. So she's, she's coming from this, Knickerbocker um, set elite of elites in, mm-hmm. in New York city, um, really well connected politically and also literally in the, in the literary scene. Right. How does she come to Morocco? What's what, what brings her there? How does she get there, Etc.
1: Um So Edith Wharton grew up, uh, she was born in 1862. One of her earliest memories because her family left the United States during the Civil War to live in Europe, where it was cheaper. Inflation was kind of out of control in New York City. Political life uh, was not something um, that anyone really wanted to be involved in. And so you find a lot of wealthy people going to Europe where they could live more cheaply and kind of stay out of the morass of the, the Civil War. And one of her and she was born uh, in 1862 during the Civil War. And her family, her early memories are of Europe, particularly Paris. And she remembers her father, uh, again, one of her earliest memories, being intent on taking the family, including her as like a three or four year old, to the Alhambra Uh Washington Irving wrote tales of the Alhambra in the 1830s. He had stayed there, and her father wanted to go and retrace his steps. I, I share that um, as um, sort of an understanding about why Morocco, because there was a real fascination among Americans with with the Arab world, with the Middle East, with North Africa, with the Ottomans. And this was something that when she came back to the United States and grew up in the United States, um, would, in, would would be just as strong, if not stronger. Um, and I would say stronger because with the advent of the steamship, you could travel, you could possibly travel to the Middle East, to the, the Holy Land, um, in a very short period of time, seven to 10 days, as opposed to being on a ship, uh, with sails. And so a lot of people began to do that. Theodore Roosevelt and Corrine, her, her friends down the street, uh, would travel to Ottoman Palestine and Ottoman Egypt in the 1870s. Wow. Edith were Warden- yeah, Edith Wharton herself is going to travel um to Algiers and to Tunis in 1888. Now, by that time, of course, Algeria is under French protection. I, I'm using scare quotes for those who who can't see, but 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 has been colonized right. by France. Um And Tunis was only a French city for six years when she went there. So. Imperial endeavors uh, by European countries are are beginning to uh, increase at the end of the 19th century. And that's an overlay of a non-imperial interest by Americans in this part of the world, that they would travel there. They'd read A Thousand and One Nights, um, other books like Ben-Hur. Um, was a real bestseller, which has been her for those who aren't familiar with 19th century American literature or famous Charlton Heston films is about um, life in in Palestine during the eight when Jesus was alive. And it was it was a bestseller that and Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad, which is about the trip Mark Twain took to Jerusalem. In 1869, um, are two of maybe the three best-selling novel uh, books rather of the 19th century, and they are both really focused on the Middle East. So there's a real interest in in works that are set in the Middle yeah. East and using steamships to travel to the Middle East. Uh, in New York, where where Wharton lives, on Fifth and I believe 38th. Fifth uh, Ave and 38th Street. There was a department store established, Vantines, A A Vantines, just to sell basically Ottoman kitsch. Um, it they really? build build itself as the mecca of fine arts and objects, and they were all from uh, you know Turkish rugs and other Middle Eastern um, sort of objects. So there was a real fascination. When Edith Wharton grew up that you can see from her father's first venture saying, you know, we're g- we got to take the kids to the Alhambra through um, through the reading material that you would might find in her father's library. The Turkish rugs that appointed her house where she grew up um, and architecture. There was a Moorish architecture um you know a lot of Moorish, so-called again I'm using scare quotes, but what's called a Moorish design in which you you borrow some of the orna- ornamental um, curly cues or, or what have you that that American architects see as as embodying a, an Eastern uh, aesthetic. And so she talks as a 70 year old, she writes her, 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 um, autobiography and she writes like about, you know, a public facility, the, the new reservoir being built in, 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 in to resemble sort of the base of a pyramid. Um, so she's surrounded, Americans are surrounded by Middle Eastern imaginative objects, uh, buildings, books, um, you know, tickets to go overseas. Sure. And, and so it's no surprise to get back to your original question uh, about why Morocco.
0: No, uh, so she's in France. She's living in France at the time and decides mm-hmm. to make the trip to Morocco. Is it, um, it, is this a, like I I'm just curious of how she sort of organizes, how she plans the trip. Um well, that's
1: that's a story in and of itself, because of course when World War One comes, she is she moved to to Paris permanently in nineteen oh seven. And she immediately uh becomes a welcome guest at sort of the last gasp of that era of salons uh that you have in Paris. Uh, just l- large, um, dinner parties or luncheons, um, or gatherings where, um, people will sit and talk about politics and the arts. And she's a welcome guest in some of the best, in fact, in the best salons. She's a famous writer. She's, you know, uh, known for her novels. But also I think what's important is um she's she's the friend of President Roosevelt. You know, so she's got that something extra that not you know you can be a famous writer and be in France but you might not know, you know, on a first name basis Theodore Roosevelt. Uh or Jusserand, who is the uh, French ambassador to the United States, um, or or so many other influential politicians. So she's she's got a real good political connections, really good creative artistic connections, um, and her French is of course impeccable. She she grew up there. And uh, or spent her formative, you know, maybe three through 10. I think she came back when she was 10. Uh, so she's really tapped in. But the people she meets and the people that she seems to enjoy spending the most time with are part of, part of the Parti Colonial. They are people who are active in terms of thinking about how can France expand its
0: empire, um, speaking of the trip, let's, let's talk about when she gets to Morocco, um, and what she does while she's there. So she comes to Tangier. She takes the boat. That's where they, right. they dock. And that, that's her first impression. That's right.
1: She takes, she goes to Tangier, but she calls it sort of a frowsy, uninteresting city. Yeah. Uh, and I, think I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think one of the reasons that she does that is not just because a lot of people, because it's a port city, um might stop there. For example, um, Mark Twain stopped there on his way to to Jerusalem. Um, but I, you know, so it, it's kind of just, you know, it's it's on the tourist circuit. But um I think as well, one of the things that bothers her about Tangier and another city that she visited but did not write about at all, which is Casablanca, is that they are you're kind of um industrial business cosmopolitan city and they have factories they have department stores she doesn't want that she does not want to see things that she can see in europe she wants to see things that are moroccan and for her moroccan means medieval a historical, time out of time. It's one of the reasons I think in Morocco gets so little um, attention is because it recycles so many Orientalist tri- tr- uh, tropes, you know, that, oh, I'm in the Arabian Nights. Oh, there's a flying carpet. Oh, there's gin. Oh, look at this beggar. He's so picturesque. You just want to throw the book against the wall. You know, she's recycling so many Orientalists um, images that that create a sense of I am a Westerner. I am superior. uh, Isn't this a quaint little um, culture that I'm visiting? And she deliberately doesn't write about places like Tangier or Casablanca that evoke a lot of like urban life that she is familiar with. Uh, she dismisses the new city in Marrakech. If you read the part about Marrakech, she gives the Ville Nouvelle like one dismissive sentence. Mm. She doesn't want to see that. And part of that I think is her political um worldview which is to recycle all of these orientalist images of the 19th century which I'm not saying weren't indicative of some sort of worldview that is very hierarchical but was were never indicative of a desire for for westerners to go in and intervene you know that that you could have orientalism without interventionism but Wharton takes this sort of standard operating procedure in terms of how we narrate the Middle East. And she adds a new element, which is the Arab world is better off if Westerners intervene. And that was something very new in American literature. That's interesting. To go to Morocco. So when the war comes, she's already very much tied into a group of policy Makers, policy influencers in, in France. She also has her, um, network back in the United States. So in terms of being able to shape conversations, she is really ideally placed. And when war breaks out, I called her, I call, I refer to her as a drawing room diplomat. Before the war, she would shape conversations among men who held formal office by bringing them together. Uh, But when the war comes, she kind of comes out of the drawing room and plays a more public role and expresses her political views much more freely. Um, Her political views being end neutrality, end American neutrality. Join France. She she works um, diligently in in charitable works, uh, helping um, refugees, um, displaced persons during World War One, and she'll win several medals from from the French government um, for that. She also reports from the front lines so that Americans can see what is happening, she, and she puts those articles in Scribner's. And you can if you read those articles, you see that she is very much uh, trying to get Americans on board in terms of ending neutrality uh, and joining World War One with France. One of the reasons America can't do that is because they won't recognize the protectorate of Morocco. They are the you legally can't join an alliance, a wartime alliance if you haven't, if you're not recognizing or you're saying that a country illegally occupied a country, Morocco. Um, and so, you know, the the uh, the protectorate of Morocco is established by France in 1912 against what the Treaty of Algeciras had permitted, which would be no one is going to um, colonize Morocco. There's going to be free trade. Americans love free trade. This is very favorable in the United States. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt sent the diplomat, John C. White, to negotiate this. France breaks the treaty in 1912 and the United States is not going to recognize France's takeover of Morocco. So that's one bit of sort of legal maneuvering that needs to take place before France can join, uh, before the United States can join France in the Western Front. And it will start to happen um, in January 1917. Um, but I think that given um, Wharton's influence politically uh i think that it was a savvy move on the part of liotay the resident general to invite this woman to come along with some other people uh who were influential like the um, the Thoreau brothers andre Chevrion, um edith wharton's best friend uh walter berry also a knickerbocker from new york city And, uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce in, in Paris will also be invited for a free trip to Morocco. Um, you know, for the, the Foire de Rabat in, in September 1917, and they'll stay for five weeks. Wharton had written favorably about Liete and some of those Scribner articles. She had visited his home which had been deliberately she she asserted bombed by german troops and she calls uh Liete, um, oh she well she called him a military hero and sort of you know the the the, the best hope uh for for africa a, against sort of the, the german yeah. uh, enemy so um so so I think the invitation to go to Morocco from Liete is part of a PR effort to bring influential people. And who is more influential than Wharton, especially since you know she loves to write about places she visits. You, you just couldn't have a better yeah. spokesperson. Uh, she I was, mean, yeah.
0: This is such an interesting intersection. I, I think I'm, you're helping me put together because it's, as a Moroccanist, I've known and seen this book, probably picked it up a few times and glanced through it, had not read it until, until recently. But, you know, it reads a bit like a lot of travelogues. Um, I mean, she, she has a way with words that some travel writers do not. Um, but it also is, um, but you're situating it here at a, a very interesting intersection of World War I, France's need to, kind of curry American favor and bring Mm -hmm. the United States of America into world war one to fight against Germany. Um, and then this fledgling protectorate, uh, is, um, and, and and of course, Edith's Edith Wharton's, you know, influence in all these very interesting different circles, both in France, Mm -hmm. but also of course in the United States. Um, so and you brought up Liote, thank you for introducing mm-hmm. him. Um Hubert Liote is the is the first resident general of the protectorate. And how do they get along? Do they meet? Do they talk?
1: You know, I haven't found out when they meet. So part of what I'm doing right now in terms of my research uh and part of what has been set aside not set aside but delayed or prolonged because I am unable to go to France for the last two years due to the pandemic, um, is to figure out when and if and how they met. Because she writes about him in her articles to Scribner so favorably, she stops in his hometown um, and stands outside, writes about standing outside of his house and seeing. The deliberate destruction of this military hero, this colonial hero, um, in a way that really kind of you, you know is clearly trying to make American readers feel anger towards Germany and sympathy towards Lieté. Um Liette comes back as minister of war to Paris in, I believe it was December 1916. Uh, a lot of people or if you read about his four month stint as Minister of War, not much happened on the Western Front. And many people dismiss it as um, sort of uh not a not a very um, good stint. He didn't do much for. For the war effort, and that's why he was back in Morocco within four months, that somehow he, he failed as a minister of war. And yet in 1916, December 1916, January, early January 1917, Secretary of State, the American Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, is writing his counterpart and saying, uh, the United States agrees in principle to, um, to recognize the French protectorate. And there follows a few months of, well, it's, you know, the, the France has the whole of Morocco and the Spanish are just guests, like the wording, you know, every preposition has to be right. But that's basically hammered out in that the first months of 1917, which is when liete is minister of war. And I have no smoking gun, but that seems awfully coincidental that he would come back and within the three months that he acts as minister of war, the United States is ready to recognize the protectorate. And then in April, President Woodrow Wilson will declare war on Germany, on the central powers, I should say, uh, which allows... <laughs> wow. American troops to come in some in the summer of 1917 and they will fight in trenches. They will be sent. The first American troops go to the trenches uh, in the al lorraine region, about 20 miles from where liete lives or grew up, uh, Krevik. Um, and that happens while Wharton is in Morocco. So. I can only imagine, like, the elaborate dinner and the bottles of wine when that news kind of came over the transom that American troops were there. Now, again, this is all correlation. I'm not – I can't say causation, but it's an awfully odd correlation. And so one of the things that I'd like to do in looking at Wharton – and Morocco and American relations with Morocco, is to kind of suss out a little bit more just when she, I think that's an important question. It's not one readily answered by archives uh, that I have my hands on now. But I would like to go to France and look at Lietes archives at the National Archives, uh, see if I can find correspondence Notes. Maybe go to the Chateau de Vincennes and and look at some of Leotay's papers there, uh, because I I am curious um, about that as well.
0: That is really fascinating. I mean, it would be well. Let's just say from one historian to another, I really hope that there's a smoking gun that you are able to. Right. Uh, right. But if not, it's, here. but it's if an not,
1: interesting correlation,
0: right? You it's have an a lot interesting of
1: interesting correlation. Yes. And the other thing that I would share with you is that in 1917, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who um, failed in his bid as an independent candidate and Wilson won the president, Theodore Roosevelt hates Woodrow Wilson. And he intends to run again as the Republican candidate. So in 1917, he is the presumed, his popularity is such that he is the presumed Republican candidate for the next presidential election. And given Wilson's unpopularity, he is the presumed next president. So, you know, why invite Wharton to Morocco at that particular time? Well, her her lifelong friend looks like he's tapped to be the next president of the United States. And it's clear now that the United States has the commercial and industrial and military power to kind of shape the world in ways that it had never been able to do in the late 19th century.
0: Well, when she's talking about Rabat, I mean, she's very specific in saying this is, a, you know, it was a beautiful city. It has some, the Medina in particular and the Kasbah mm-hmm. have particular traits, but thank goodness for... Um the French and Leote finally preserving it, finally um
1: doing what the Arabs it. themselves seem incapable of doing. Now, yeah. of course, those preservation projects, and, and Graham, you know I've written a bit on on French preservation, um actually often were premised on a false understanding of what modern Morocco was. Their merchants <coughs> had traveled Throughout Europe, they brought back new design ideas. There was electricity in the Royal Palace in Fez. Um, Again, you know, industrial mills. Um, So she had an idea and the French had an idea of what Morocco should be. And if Morocco doesn't fit what Morocco should be in her eyes, she, first of all, won't write about it. But if you're French, you'll actually begin to start tearing down some of these buildings. If a a building isn't being preserved, like a madrasa isn't being preserved, it's because it's not being used. You know, it's not because people don't care. It's because curriculum and, and education is changing. People are. Are beginning to do things in new ways. And so certain buildings, yes, of course, fall into disrepair. Does that mean, you know, that it's equally of true, of course, in, in, in France or, or other places where there's a, a big preservationist movement once modernization comes in and you start to have new types of buildings, new types of urban life. So, yeah. um, but for, for Wharton, she is, In the midst, and has been for almost four years, well, three years, three and a a little years, in 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 the first industrial war, and she is nostalgic, and she does not want to see the ills of modern urbanization, of industrialization. Interesting. Yeah. She does not. If you if you look at the book, uh, if when you read the book, you'll see that. One of the things that pleases her is that you can't even tell there's a war going on in Europe there, you know, and she calls it a holiday. So there is a nostalgia there that is not just, oh, um, that goes beyond Orientalism. I, I'll say that there's a hierarchical understanding of the West and the Arab world. There is also a layer of new sort of interventionism as being the norm, as being the best uh, situation for Arabs who need Western tutelage. This is something you did not see to that extent in Western travel literature before Wharton, even though her book seems like kind of the last gasp of the 19th century, you know, travelogues. I think it's the first kind of breath of this new sort of thinking about interventionism. And then you add to that this nostalgia that she herself has for a world before the war, a world before the ills and dislocation of industrialization and urbanization. And she can find something of that in Morocco. And that's what she's looking for. And that's, I think, what draws her. And that's why she doesn't write a word about Casablanca. She doesn't write a word about any Ville Nouvelle except to dismissively say you can see the kind of etchings of the Ville Nouvelle uh as I travel to the Medina. She stayed at the Baha uh bahia Palace, but am I remembering that? Bahia, uh the Marrakech uh mm. Residence. It was the um anyway the, the 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 bahia Palace. I can't I I'm I'm not sure I'm saying that if I'm mixing up. Uh, letters anyway, um, so she's staying in the Medina, and I think that for her as someone who's who's been suffering through the war for so long, that there's a certain uh, nostalgia for a life that the West can no longer have by by going into these Medinas that the French are preserving.
0: I see so I, one thing I notice is that she she's she has a lot of information about the history of Morocco, but she doesn't interact with a lot of people um, in the narrative. I mean, so I'm curious, you know, where for first, where is she getting her information from? You know, she when they arrive in Meknes, she sort of mm. sits. I think it's in the, maybe in the gardens of the the, the French officer or something um, mm. in charge of the Meknes region and and says she listens, quote, she quote, listens to the history of this fascinating city. Um, but who's who's kind of guiding her? Who's teaching yeah. her this stuff and giving her this information? Yeah.
1: It's a lot of the French administrators from the, the Department of Fine Arts and Historic Monuments. Um, I think she meets with Prosper Ricard. Um, she meets with the first um, director um, of historic monuments. I think he travels with her the whole time. Uh, she mentions a few other administrators, um, from that department as well as she goes, as she goes, uh, down, um, you know, the lietes, of course, um, as well. She stays at the residence. She becomes very friendly with, um, lietes wife. Um, so everything she's learning about Fran- about Morocco is filtered through the prism of French colonial administrators um, and her own preconceived notions about what it means to live in the Arab world. So, for example, she she talks about um, going to um, harems I, again, everyone I'm using scare quotes, uh, visiting the women of the house and um, you know, how they don't really kind of talk much, um, you know, they just seem very passive. They only kind of liven up when a kid comes in. And I, you know, I read that not yet. Of course, you don't want to read your own experiences in something, but I, you know, I was just like, they wanted nothing to do with this woman. Like yeah. Moroccan hospitality is nowhere to be found when she visits the women in a, both a merchant's house and 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 you know it, you know there's just um, but but for her what she's seeing what what I'm seeing as she describes like people not really engaging her women not engaging her is boy they were really put up to this and she did they did not they did not want to entertain this woman what she sees is oh they're so victimized they're so beleaguered oh right. god you know. So um she she brings a lot of these preconceived notions about Morocco with her. And then you have the overlay of the French narration of what she's actually seeing since she never talks, it seems, with really anyone who's Moroccan. I think I can think of one person she spoke with who was Moroccan uh for for the entire book. So um it's it's a it's a hard it's not. It's the kind of book that historians will set aside and and literary scholars will set aside because for our 21st century kind of understanding, it's really bad. It's just ethnic essentializing. Um, you know, it's it's Orientalist. It's a complete misreading of what's going on. I had first read it in maybe 1999, Uh, and I was working on my first book, which was about urban labor. And I'm like, let me read what an American has to say. Maybe she has some anecdote that I can add about what life in a a market is, the marketplace. And I read it, and again, I wanted to throw it against the wall. I probably (laughs) did. I'm going back 20 years later, though, because why would a famous American author, at the height of her career, at the height of her power, she wins the Pulitzer Prize the the same year as she publishes in Morocco for The Age of Innocence, which is her her most famous book. She is at the height of her artistic power, She is tapped in as well politically. And here she is using that power to produce in Morocco, which is a book that is not well thought of, you know, in terms of her legacy and is often dismissed. And so I'm going back and I'm just saying, why? Why would Edith Wharton publish this book then? You know, why is that? And for me, what I'm what what the book is a catalyst for understanding is how Wharton wanted to play a role in shaping American attitudes towards the Middle East and North Africa, that it was not in the early 20th century set in stone that the United States is going to allow Morocco, the first country that ever acknowledged American independence, a country with a long diplomatic history with the West, a country that has a thousand year monarchy. This is not just some Ottoman province or a Spanish province, like switching hands. This is an independent autonomous country. And it was not clear that the United States wanted or would allow uh, for European colonization there. It's a, you know, it might've been a very like short lived window of a few years, but there is the possibility in the early 20th century, when the United States is coming into its own as a commercial and industrial power, that it will prevent colonization of Morocco. And, and if that is the case, um, what about the Middle East? Like, you know, where is sure. the United States going to stand in terms of of its attitude towards European colonialism in the Arab world? Clearly, the United States had just taken the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico. Um, it wasn't necessarily that the government of the United States is against imperialism. Um, it had taken these Spanish colonies as their own in 1898. But Morocco is different. And Morocco um, is an important place in the Mediterranean region. And if it's colonized, then the United States, I mean, we can say, is this yeah. idealistic? It's not idealistic necessarily that the United States wants to help Morocco. But in helping Morocco, the United States can achieve more pragmatic aims in terms of the growth of its commerce and power influence in the world
0: i i guess i to close i want to ask what happens to the book um when does it come out how is it received who mm-hmm. reads it um you know it's a it's a mm-hmm. work that again i've seen on on a handful of shelves in my various um you know searchings for yeah. for all things morocco over the past 10 or so years but it, one i've never really taken a great interest in so i'm curious about its sort of immediate. Um, publication and reception
1: um first of all came out as a series of articles i can't remember it wasn't scribner's but i can't remember so it it was serialized like many of the books of that time before it, it came out in 1920 um it's heavily reviewed uh any any newspaper or magazine um of the time is going to review it but at the time it's 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 reviewed by by anyone who's everyone in terms of the media. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily stay, but by the 1920s, you start to see movies like The Sheik. You know, you, you start to see that that's, that that idea of intervention and Westerners can help organize uh, the Arab world becomes more embraced. But when you see some of these reviews, you'll notice, uh, there's one in particular in the nation, um, where the, the reviewer, Arita Van Doren says, this book has everything you want in a travel account about the Arab world. There's camels and donkeys and sand and, you know, and let alone she never went to the, to, to the desert, by the way, she thinks she's in the desert as soon as she leaves. Tangier, you know, she talks she, about the
0: desert all the time. All yeah.
1: the time. Um, but she says, but the, Rita Van Doren, who reviewed the book, you can see that there's still a lingering sense that the United States should not promote interventionism because she says, and this is great, you know, this is exciting, but she has this colonial viewpoint that ruins everything. So in other words. The Orientalist nature of her descriptions, those are recycled, but that new tendency to use them as a means of promoting Western conquest, Western intervention, is very new. And you can still sense that in some of the reviews of the book from that time.
0: Well, Stacey, uh Thank you so much. This, this is great. Honestly, well, thank a fascinating. Thank you so
1: much for, for letting me <laughs> talk about this for, for a bit. It's, it's been a wonderful experience for me.
0: Thanks for listening to Moroccan American. This podcast was recorded and produced by Graham Cornwell, that's me, and Amanda Brockler. The podcast intro and outro music is Coast Highway by A.A. Alto. Moroccan American is part of the Moroccan American Studies Initiative. Thanks to the Institute for Middle East Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. And finally, a big thank you to the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies and the U.S. Embassy at Rabat, whose support makes this project possible. Of course, the words and ideas expressed in this podcast series do not represent either of our sponsors.